0: Today we're bringing you the third and final installment of our collaboration with the Center for Public Justice. The Center for Public Justice, or CPJ, is an independent, nonpartisan organization devoted to policy research and civic education. Working outside the familiar categories of right and left, conservative and liberal, CPJ seeks to help citizens and public officeholders achieve justice. Last year, CPJ launched the Families Valued Initiative, a project that promotes organizational and public policies that better support family life and respect the family responsibilities of all workers.
1: In this collaboration between the Vernacular Podcast Network and the Center for Public Justice, we're teaming up with the people behind the Families Valued Initiative to talk about the struggles that modern families face and to learn how we can better support families through private enterprise, charitable initiatives, and public policy.
0: Supporting today's families is a bipartisan imperative. According to 2018 data from the U.S. Census Bureau, Americans are waiting longer than ever to get married, yet delaying marriage has done nothing to drive down divorce rates. Marriage rates have declined over the past three decades, while divorce rates have steadily risen. And while marriage faces challenges of permanence, married couples are having fewer children. In a 2013 survey by Pew, only 49% of people listed having kids as a main reason for getting married. A summer 2018 Pew survey found that 71% of parents under 50 described themselves as not likely to have kids or more kids.
1: And yet, despite these symptoms of pressure, today's families overwhelmingly describe family as the primary source of meaning in their life. In a 2017 survey, 69% of adults listed family as a source of meaning in their life, more than double the amount of the next highest answer, career. This is why it's important for us to find ways to support families. We shouldn't have an economy that makes it necessary for 82% of parents to work outside of the home. We shouldn't have to fight for paid parental leave at a majority of private companies. And we shouldn't make quality healthcare a luxury that parents can't afford for their children. We need churches, employers, community organizations courts, and legislatures to support the family at all stages of life. And that's why we're happy to announce this collaboration with CPJ's Families Valued Initiative.
0: For more information or to join the discussion, reach out to us at Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com, head to vernacularpodcast.com, or visit familiesvalued.org. Enjoy the show. Okay, here it is, the final installment of our three-part series in collaboration with the Center for Public Justice, and in the first episode, we heard from Chelsea Maxwell, who talked to us about some stories regarding families who are facing struggles today, and in part two, last episode, we talked to Rachel Anderson, who talked to us about some of the sources of stress, and today we're going to talk about some practical ways to address those sources of stress and some principles for doing so.
1: Yeah, this conversation will serve as the capstone for our series um, we'll be talking about empowering family time, and we're going to draw upon the lessons of the previous two episodes to cast a vision of how civil society and public institutions must work in concert to protect families, and that's a quote from CPJ's Time to Flourish report. So just to set us off, the the report establishes a conceptual framework for the right ordering of family, work, and rest, and we've talked at length about the first two in our two previous episodes, but we haven't discussed rest very much. Zach, why is rest so important?
0: It's a good question. I think rest is important because it's what allows us to subordinate work to its proper place. Work is an inherent good, not just an instrumental one. I think too often we think of work as an instrumental good and we value it because it gets us what we want. Normally that's money,
1: power, power,
0: fame, whatever the case is, but that's not what's good about work. Work can be instrumental in helping us achieve good things, but work in and of itself is a good aim as well. But work shouldn't be the ultimate good. And there is another good that is better than that, and that's referred to as the good of leisure. We talked about this just a little bit with Rachel last episode, but I think the problem here is that we tend to worship work. It's something that is the pinnacle of human achievement. Yeah, and career. If, right, career, exactly. We talked a little bit about that statistic from the Pew survey in in the, in the introduction to this episode where lots of people value family, but the second most popular answer in what provides you meaning in life is career. And there's something, there's something sort of perverse from that if someone gets the, their source of meaning entirely or even uh, first and foremost from their career. So leisure, properly understood, provides us an opportunity to escape from that. Um, and my launching point for this is Joseph Pieper's Leisure, the Basis of Culture, which I also mentioned in the last episode. It's an excellent read. It's very short. I highly recommend it. It's pretty digestible as well. And in it, Pieper advances this idea that we're in a phase of history in which the idea of work is in its final and extreme form, to use his language. Now, keep in mind, Pieper is writing this book in the 1950s. So this is the era of containment policy, communism, the post-war economic boom, the war had just seen, the horrors of World War II. All that stuff, I think, shades his interpretation of it just a little bit. And so I think it's important to keep that context in mind. But at the same time, most of what he's saying, I think, still holds exactly true. I think our maybe he's wrong in that we're, we were in the final form of work now because I think the, the way we look at work is a little bit different from, from what it was then. But I still think that he's right that the whole field, and this is a quote, the whole field of intellectual activity has been overwhelmed by the modern ideal of work and is at the mercy of its totalitarian claims. So what does this have to do with leisure? Well, in his telling, and I agree with him, leisure is the basis of culture because when we properly understand it, it provides us with an opportunity to escape that totalitarian nature of modern work.
1: So are we just talking about vacation time? We can just escape from work right. so that we can get back <laughs> yeah, to work?
0: Exactly. Leisure is pleasure, right? Just we, we go we have to the that. Beach. Yeah, go to the beach, take some time off from work. Right, so this is, I think, an important Nuance to the discussion to understand because a lot of companies today, and this is a good thing. I mean, I, I think this is great. They say, you know, we have an unlimited vacation policy. What does that mean? That means that anytime you want, you can take off time from work and go as long as you get vacation, your job done, right? Get your job done. You can have as much vacation as you want, right? Awesome. That sounds great. Well, normally the reason that companies do that is because they say something like. A happy worker is a productive worker. So why do they have the vacation policy? They have the vacation policy so that you can come back to work more refreshed and ultimately be more productive and help the bottom line for that so company. So the
1: le- leisure is still at the service of work.
0: Right. So I think Pieper would say it's not really true leisure because he says that when you're taking a break from your work, if it's an hour or a day or a week, it's still part of the world of work because it's, a, as he says, a link in the chain of utilitarian functions. The pause is made for the sake of work and in an order to work. And a man is not only refreshed from work, but for work. That's This is all a direct quote from him. But then he goes on to say, leisure is an altogether different matter. It is no longer on the same plane. It runs at right angles to work. Leisure, like contemplation, is of a higher order than the active life. The power to know leisure is the power to overstep the boundaries of the workaday world and reach out to superhuman, life-giving, existential forces that refresh and renew us before we turn back to daily work. And then this is the key part and this sort of Uh, echoes some of the language that we use to talk about our podcast and what we try to do here at Vernacular. Pieper says, in leisure, the truly human values are saved and preserved because leisure is the means whereby the sphere of the specifically human can be left behind.
1: So he's distinguishing between truly human values, which is the language we like to talk about here. What does it mean to be truly human and specifically human? So what, those sound very similar.
0: They do. I had to reread that portion of the book a few times to grasp what he was talking about. I think what he's saying is the truly human activities are those that speak most directly to our essence, to our being. And those are things like relationships. So when people say, that the the vast majority of people say, my primary source of meaning in my life is my family, they're finding meaning in their relationships. The specifically human stuff is the the sort of exigencies of human life. It's, It's running to soccer practice and doctor's appointments and going grocery shopping and like all of these things that can be good but are the, the nitty-gritty of life and don't speak to us in our true essence the way the, the, the truly human things do. And so leisure, in people's telling, is a way for us to access those truly human parts of life and get away from the specifically human that sort of drag us down and prevent us from communing with our true natures.
1: All right, so this lays a great philosophical foundation for talking about the practical ways that workplaces can support a family's attempts to prioritize prioritize family, work, and rest in healthy and sustainable ways. So what are some of those practical ways?
0: Yes, I think that's also a really good question. So let me caveat this first. I'm gonna talk about paid parental leave. But when I do that, well, I mean, one of, the, one of the things we have to talk about is how paid parental leave can actually positively affect a company's bottom line. Now, I just... Gave you a philosophical foundation for why we shouldn't primarily be concerned with a company's bottom line. But the reality is, most of today's companies, I think it's fair to say, are concerned with, primarily with their bottom line. So, paid parental leave is a good thing independent of a company's bottom lines, but I think that needs to be a part of the discussion just to get the ball rolling and get companies buying into the idea of providing to
1: provide incentives. Exactly. So that they want to. Precisely. Pay people. Yeah, have
0: to, you have to convince them that it's worth it and it will positively affect their bottom line. Okay, so let's talk about paid family leave. Now, it's a good thing, uh, but it, it doesn't happen nearly enough of the time, okay? So I found a 2017 BCG study, and actually the Time to Flourish report from Families Valued CPJ's team mentions this exact study. And let me quote to you a portion from this. Absent a federal paid family leave policy, it is primarily employers that determine whether employees have access to paid time off to care for a new child or an ill family member. So... Brief editorial comment here, the BCG study is basically saying that since we don't have a federal framework requiring employers to provide paid parental leave, it's really just totally up to the employers whether or not they want to do that. Okay, so the report continues. The result is that only 14% of the U.S. workforce has access to employer-sponsored paid family leave, and coverage has increased just 3 percentage points from 11% to 14% since 2010, and it's concentrated among certain segments of workers. Workers in the highest income quartile are 3.5 times more likely to have access to paid family leave than those in the lowest income quartile. Similarly, coverage is three times greater among full-time workers than among part-time workers. So that's very significant there, I think. If you if you break up the the income levels of all American workers into quartiles, right? Into quarters, the people in that top quarter are three and a half times more likely to even have employer sponsored paid parental leave. And not only that, they're going to have three and a half times uh, or three times the amount of coverage, right? So even if you're one of those lucky workers in the bottom quartile who gets paid parental leave, it's probably not going to be nearly as long as someone in that upper quartile who's having it. And why is that significant? It's because people in the upper quartile, although it, although they definitely should get paid parental leave, they really probably don't need it as much, right? If you're making $120,000 a year, you'd probably be okay if your company said, you can take leave for six weeks, but we're not going to pay you, right? You, you you probably are at a point where you have some money saved away. If you're making $30,000 a year or $40,000 a year and you're trying to feed your family on that, you probably can't take six weeks unpaid, right? You have to have some money, a steady income stream to make up for that. And so we're really doing a huge disservice to the people who are in that bottom quartile um, and really all up and down the the employment chain. Now, here's another interesting thing from that study though. Um, And then this next part leans on another Ernst & Young, another study from Ernst & Young But basically, BCG says that companies that have employer-sponsored paid parental leave report that the rewards outweigh the costs, particularly when compared with those of other benefits they could provide. Given the difficulty, and I'm quoting again, given the difficulty of quantifying the benefits of a paid family leave policy, few of the companies we studied relied on a pure economic calculation when making their decision. So that's good, going back to my point about relying on just the bottom line. That said, empirical evidence does suggest that among companies that have implemented such policies, paid family leave has generally helped or had no effect on their bottom line. In Ernst & Young's study, for example, 92% of companies with a paid family leave policy reported that it had a positive effect or no effect on profitability. So that's the vast majority of companies that have paid parental leave saying that ultimately this helps us or in, in worst case, it does nothing to our bottom line.
1: So are we using any of these the, these statistics in policy today? Has this like trickled down yet from the, the the theory to the studies to the policymakers?
0: Well, I think the answer is two parts. One, yes, it is. And that 14%, I haven't seen statistics from 2019, but that 14% number of employers who have employer sponsored paid parental leave, that's from 2017. Now, that was only a three percentage point increase from seven years before that. So this is improving slowly, but I think companies are catching on. And as they do, and as these types of statistics come out and people become more aware of the plight of modern families, we're driving or that phenomenon is driving a conversation at the levels of policymakers to do this. But there still obviously is no framework for paid mandated family leave nationwide. But there's there's stuff happening. So last year, Senator Marco Rubio introduced an act called the Economic Security Act for new parents. This would have required companies to give time off for parental leave. But the key thing is here, it would have provided the compensation for new parents out of individual security, social security contributions. So rather than the employer paying that paid family leave, individuals would unfortunately be dipping into their future social security savings to fund their paid family leave then. And so I think two concerns that I have with this are, one, you are making someone pay and sacrifice their future investment earnings for paid uh, leave now. And two, you're giving companies a get out of jail free card and basically saying, hey, we're going to spot this employee for you. You don't need to take care of your employee. We'll do it. And Really, they'll do it out of their own Social Security savings, right? So those are my two my two issues with this. Senators Michael Lee and Joni Ernst of Utah and Iowa, respectively, have introduced a brand new piece of legislation this year that's essentially the same thing. It's called the Cradle Act, but it doesn't have bipartisan support. The Democratic Caucus doesn't want people dipping into Social Security for that, so it's probably going to be dead on arrival. And the the bottom line is, and, and this is very unfortunate, but the bottom line is this paid parental leave issue is really just roadblocked by... Uh, a lack of bipartisan cooperation on this. The competing sides have different visions for how to implement it, even though both sides agree that paid parental leave needs to happen. Now, I don't think that's... An, it's it's a. Uh, I don't think it's a permanent roadblock. I think we can get there, and I think there are some discussions that are going on that can help us get there. But unfortunately, it just doesn't seem like it's going to happen, um, this year at least.
1: You came up with an interim idea.
0: I do have an interim idea, and uh, there's at least... There's one part of this is, is actually potentially a reality now or could be a reality soon. And there's another part that probably won't be, but I'll talk about both of them. So the interim idea, the interim idea is that the federal government government at least mandate paid parental leave for its employees. Right. So from the from the standpoint of a policymaker who's trying to figure out how best to tackle this issue, I understand on the one hand, the hesitancy to have people dip into their social security savings to fund their own parental leave that doesn't seem fair. We're basically penalizing people for having kids. On the other side, I also understand the hesitation of people who don't want to be mandating exactly how and when companies pay their employees. This, you know, this this should be something that ideally the free market will sort of work out and, and work out to everyone's advantage more so than uh, heavy-handed government regulation could. However, there is one area where, where I definitely think Everyone can agree that the federal government has the ability to say how and when and why and where people are paid, and that's their own employees. So, so the you know, millions of Americans who are employed by the federal government directly, they should be entitled to paid family leave. And it's crazy to realize that they're not. This is something that could very easily happen overnight with a piece of legislation, but it has not yet. Now, Carolyn Maloney, who is a Democratic congresswoman, she has introduced a bill and that bill would mandate 12 weeks of paid parental leave for every federal employee. Now, I think that's a great first step, at least mandating that every federal employee has 12 weeks of paid parental leave. And here's the add-on idea that I have. And I'm sure other people have talked about this as well. I have, I'm not aware of any of these discussions happening. I would love to be corrected. I, I would love to have a listener weigh in and tell me that this is a discussion. But right now, the federal government has some policies in place that say, for example, we will not do business with you. You can't be a, gov- a business that contracts with the federal government for any purpose if you are um, if you are supporting this foreign government or you're supporting this uh, boycott of a foreign government, et cetera, right? So we're, we're able to put these stipulations on companies. Why not put a stipulation on companies that if they're going to contract with the federal government, they also have to take care of their workers in this key way, provide, provide 12 weeks of paid parental leave at no penalty to that employee. And the hiring company will pay their salary from their own coffers. That seems like a very reasonable way forward to me and it falls short of of course mandating that every employer across the company does this or across the country does this. Now I think this would have a couple of effects. One obviously it would it would probably drive a change to the vast majority of companies that currently contract with the federal government because they wouldn't want to lose their contracts. But two um, it would also, I think, drive a trickle-down effect that would slowly expand through the rest of the market economy as companies need to make this change to stay competitive in hiring and retention with their competitors, their business competitors.
1: And hopefully more positively as they see the effects on their employees and maybe on their bottom line and right. office culture. They recognize it's a good company thing. culture, yeah.
0: Exactly. So that's what I'm hopeful for. And like I said, there's a piece of legislation by Democrat Carolyn Maloney at least proposing the first part of that, that federal workers will get 12 weeks of paid parental leave. So it's a, it's a complicated discussion, and this is not a policy podcast, so we don't have time to get too much more in the weeds on this, but that's an overview of paid parental leave and sort of the, the current state of things today.
1: Okay, so that's paid family leave as one of the ways that we've been thinking about as to practically support families, um, a way that workplaces can do that. What about policies on that center around unplugging?
0: Yeah, this is something that the CPJ report mentions as well. They're, they use an example of a company called Hope International, and the microfinance team of Hope International is forbidden. This is great. They're forbidden from sending work emails at night or on weekends. So the, the work part of their work is very firmly in the day, the, the weekday, And during the day. Yeah, that's great. It's the only company I've heard of that does that. I'm sure there are others out there, but it's not a common thing. Much more common is the expectation that, hey, if I send you an email at 8 p.m., you will have read it by the time you come into work in the morning. Or if I send you an email on Friday at 5 p.m., I want you to read that over the weekend. Maybe respond to it, but at least be thinking about this problem over your weekend while you would otherwise be engaging in leisure time with your family, right? So that's much more common. I love hearing stories about companies that are doing the opposite. I read about this company in Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina called Bandwidth. It's a technology company. The founder there tries to set the example. And when he goes on vacation, he makes sure he is unreachable, as if, like, if the company went up in flames, nobody would know how to contact the <laughs> founder. And I think that's a really good example of, yeah. of being able to unplug and sever yourself from the specifically human stuff that Joseph Piper talks about and engage in the truly human activities.
1: Yeah, and I think you have to be a up- that upfront about it by making a policy forbidding or being, you know, saying I'm going to be unreachable because otherwise if it's just not stated, then you kind of feel like, well, I better still work over the weekend so that I'm not behind or so that other people, because there's going to be other people who are working over the weekend. So I better too. And you just, you kind of have this peer pressure and unless there's a policy stating, we don't want you to.
0: Right. I think that's a really good point. And when we talk about government and civil society working together, I definitely don't think the government should be telling companies that they can't mandate workers reply to emails past the duty day. <laughs> That's a silly thing for the government to be legislating. But I do think companies need to lead right. on this. And right. companies, like like you are saying, Sally, they need to be explicit in setting those expectations. Because they can say ambiguously or esoterically, we support you prioritizing your family when you're not at work. But then if there is this unspoken expectation from your supervisor to you that, Hey, I sent you an email. uh, I haven't heard back yet. That's not helpful. And that's not in accordance with what the company is otherwise stating. So I think like you said, explicit policies like hope international has, Hey, you will not answer emails. (laughs) If I send you an email at 5 PM, I don't want to see an email from you on that email until at least 8 AM the next day.
1: Yeah. And I think another reason why that's important is that it's not only supporting families or, um, employees who have families that they're going to go home to and try to spend time with over right. the weekend or on their vacations but it's setting a standard also for people who are single and maybe not part of a regular family who should still adopt healthy practices definitely. and still not worship at the altar of work.
0: That's definitely true.
1: And should set should should start living their lives in a healthy way now even you know, maybe they they eventually want to be part of a family of their own.
0: Right, because again, this isn't just about family. Right. Family this is... Something is,
1: that human beings should right. be doing is having leisure, having rest.
0: Exactly. I think spending time with your family is one obvious example of leisure that is a truly human activity that you can pursue. But the bottom line is that everyone should be pursuing leisure. And for someone who doesn't have a family, that could be just... That could be sitting and reading books. We've talked about the value of reading books before. That could be volunteering in your community or just just communing and eating meals with other people and fellowshipping with other people. All of that stuff is the truly human activities that is independent from pursuing, you know, work, working on your latest KPIs or or whatever performance metrics at work.
1: All right, before we wrap up, let's talk about some principles for how to craft public policy that supports these goals. And and um, I think we've come up with three principles that public policy makers and companies could be thinking about as they try to create better family supportive and human policies in their workplaces.
0: Yeah. So these three sort of flow into each other. The first is profitability is not the bottom line. We've we've hammered this home. I think I don't think we need to discuss it too much more. But if if, uh, if profitability is not the bottom line, it opens you up to think about what is the bottom line. The second principle is that work is not the ultimate source of meaning or the reason for our existence. So not only are we saying that profitability is not the bottom line, but work isn't the bottom line either. I think again, work is an inherent good, not an instrumental good. So work is not good only insofar as it brings you profit or generates the company profit. Work is good in and of itself, but it is not the highest good. It is subordinate to the highest good, which is leisure. And again, refer back to our definition of leisure and how we define that. We're not saying that vacation time is better than time in the office. We are saying that leisure provides you time to pursue those things that are most worth pursuing. In the case of paid parental leave, and in the context specifically of a discussion about how families today are struggling, family time, this is the third principle. Family time is more essential than work time. Sally brings up a very good point for those who don't have families or don't have families nearby that, you know, substitute leisure for right. family time there. Yeah. Yeah. Family time slash leisure is more essential than work time because what it does is gives human beings time to pursue those activities that are truly human. It lets them escape the nitty gritty of their everyday lives, escape the exigencies of human existence and pursue those things that help them be human.
1: All right. That sounds like a great way to wrap up our final episode in our three part series with the center for public justice. If you haven't heard the first two episodes, we encourage you to go back and listen to our conversations with Chelsea and Rachel researchers for the center for public justice and we encourage you to share this series with your friends and family
0: thanks so much for listening to vernacular podcast if you want more information about this project you can go to cpjustice.org to look at the website of the center for public justice or you can always go to vernacularpodcast.com we'd love to hear from you as well you can reach out zach and sally at vernacularpodcast.com or on twitter and instagram at vernacular pod all right for vernacular podcast i'm zach and i'm sally have a great week Hi. by your side